0: And when I confronted the captain of this pirate ship and we, uh, we very nearly had a confrontation between the two of us. Indeed, it was the closest I've ever come to shooting somebody and the closest I've ever come to being shot myself.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building... Positions in there for to us. By the time anyone got to us, I think it was the weather was so bad there would I be of and, and the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. The, the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd oh, send the nice kids, to to kids to in to first. So, so he was sent in first one into one. an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very
0: hard for my family. And the plane I'm proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. Volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line.
1: I had the great honour of speaking with a retired rear admiral and former governor of New South Wales, the Honourable Peter Sinclair, AC. This is our conversation. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm joined today by Peter Sinclair. Peter, thank you for coming on the podcast with me. My pleasure. You were born in 1934. What was it like
0: growing up during World War II? Well, I guess, uh, together with others of my generation, my earliest memories were of World War II. Uh, I can't remember the peace that preceded 1939, Uh, and it seemed a normal thing for boys like me to uh, talk about what was happening in the war and follow the war's progress. Uh, I was uh, anxious to be able to join up as soon as I could, but obviously I was much too young. But I was able to join the Navy League cadets at a very young age and uh, I became Ordinary Signalman Sinclair in Navy League Training Depot Perth and that was down in Manly. I remember being told by the uh, commander down there that it's called Navy League Training Depot Perth to confuse the Japanese because in Perth they have a Navy League Training Depot Sydney and I was naive enough in those days to uh, believe that. But we spent most of our time uh, training to combat the Japanese if they invaded Australia, which sounds ridiculous now for children age 8 to 10 years of age. We did have a, an occasion when I very nearly uh, created a record in that uh, every weekend one or two of our number would join the Navy in the patrol boats in Sydney and spend the weekend uh, polishing bright work and generally uh, occupying ourselves so that we could gain a little bit of experience. And, of course, when the Japanese submarines attacked, I had the opportunity, if I'd been selected, to be probably the youngest person ever to take part in operations against the Japanese. But, unfortunately, I wasn't uh, so occupied that weekend. But it could have been. I uh, always wanted to join the Navy. I kept a scrapbook of World War Two, which I've still got, in which uh, there were ships... Uh, in the news that I later served in and so it was a an unusual boyhood but uh, conditioned by the fact that we happened to be that age during World War II. So your young love of the Navy
1: obviously drew you to act, making that a career when you grew up but you joined after the war had finished. What inspired you to join the armed forces even though the threat of conflict appeared to have subsided?
0: Well I suppose I just wanted to go to sea. My father was the general manager of a coastal shipping company and I would have quite happily joined the Merchant Navy if they would take me at that age but as I could join the Navy at the age of 13 I thought I should do that and I was fortunate enough to be uh, selected and uh, so I spent four years down at the Naval College in, then in Victoria from 1948 to 1951. The one thing of interest that occurred while I was in Navy League cadets is that I went on board H.M.A.S. Hobart, the cruiser, in Sydney Harbour, uh, dressed as in my Navy League uniform, to adopt the ship for my primary school. And I remember walking on the quarterdeck with uh, then-Captain Dowling, the captain of Hobart, uh, talking to him about the school, and he was telling me about the ship. And, of course, much later in my career, I happened to command H.M.A.S. Hobart, the ship that took over from the cruiser, the guided missile destroyer and had a wonderful three years in that ship. After the bloodshed of the terrible war you witnessed growing up,
1: a new conflict arises where North Korea invades South Korea. Do you recall the day you heard that Australia was going to war?
0: Uh, yes, I, I, I do. Indeed, it's, uh, as a midshipman, you were required to keep a journal. And in that journal, not only the events that occur in the ship, but events that relate to defence generally. And so I kept a record in my journal of the Korean War. We followed it with with great interest. Were you posted to Korea? I joined uh, as a midshipman, the destroyer, HMA, as a runter, battle-class destroyer. We were going to to Korea and uh, the ceasefire was signed as the ship was going to Korea. I I guess they must have heard that midshipman Sinclair was coming and they better stop the conflict quickly. That was the time to call the surrender. Yes, that's right. So I didn't actually see action in, in the Korean War but was serving in a ship that went to Korea had you known anyone that had fought in World War Two or
1: Korea before your ship was sent there?
0: Oh yes, uh, most of the people I served with at sea, indeed seven of the 14 ships that I served in had taken part in World War Two. And uh, most of the people that trained us in, the first, in my first eight years in the Navy were World War Two veterans. I imagine they were great role models for you. Absolutely. And the other uh, sort of unusual thing about the Navy, because I don't think it applies to the other services, is that when you serve as a midshipman or a sub-lieutenant in a, a ship that took part in World War 2 you're conscious of the fact that uh, the ship that you're now serving in fought in that action and a great many people were wounded or killed. Now that applies in particular, for example, to the cruiser HMAS Australia, where I spent most of my time as a midshipman. And to be on the bridge and know that this was a ship that had been hit five times by kamikaze aircraft and that people, had been killed all around where you were standing uh, was fairly significant. You managed to avoid getting
1: in the thick of it at Korea, but what were the rest of your early Navy years like?
0: Well, I I guess I served most of my time as uh, during the the Cold War, wherever we were, whether it was in the Mediterranean or the Far East, uh, you're always conscious of the fact that there was this uh, situation applying to wherever the ship happened to be, or the Soviet Union, were deployed in in various parts of the world uh, just as we were. Uh, we would occasionally sort of meet up with them and there was a different uh, sort of set of practices that, that had to be uh, observed when you were working in, in, in that sort of environment. So you never really felt that it was peacetime in the true sense of the word. A decade after you
1: start full-time in the Navy,
0: the Indonesia-Malaysia
1: confrontation flares up in 1962. Can you briefly summarise for our listeners what that confrontation was about?
0: Well, it was the uh, Indonesia uh, wanting to oppose the formation of Malaysia and uh, they embarked on a, uh, a military campaign to, uh, to prevent it. And that involved sending special forces and soldiers uh, into Borneo in particular and parts of, of, the, uh, of Malaya itself And our task was to prevent the Indonesians from doing that and to discourage them from doing it. And so I was involved as the gunnery officer of Bendetta uh, down uh, off the waters of Sabah and around Indonesia, uh, carrying out patrols to prevent the Indonesians from making those infiltrations. I was the boarding officer as well as being the gunnery officer, so I was the person who led a small team uh, on board all these craft to inspect them and to see whether... Uh, they were innocent or indeed Indonesian craft uh, trying to carry out some clandestine operation. And did you catch some in the act of that? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, but I have to say the the most uh, serious event that occurred during these operations was when we boarded a, a Filipino pirate ship uh, without realising, of course, at the time that it, it wasn't Indonesian. And I I had a, a, an incident that was quite... Um, dangerous and and I guess in retrospect, very exciting. And when I confronted the captain of this pirate ship and we uh, we very nearly had a confrontation between the two of us, indeed it was the closest I've ever come to shooting somebody and the closest I've ever come to being shot myself. How did that resolve itself? You'll stare down with a pirate, well, I, I had uh, th- this rather nasty-looking fellow. He was he was every inch the pirate. He even had the scar down his right cheek. He was uh, sitting at the wheel with his hands under the canopy. And uh, we had um, arrested all the other crew members and the, the rest of my boarding party team were now searching them and the craft. And I told this fellow to remove his hands from under the canopy slowly and put them on his head. And I was only about three feet away from him. And the Malaysian corporal who interpreted for me, gave that instruction. He removed one hand, put it on his head. The other was still under the canopy. And I again told him that this time, last instruction, take your hand out from under the canopy slowly and put it on your head. He started to remove his hand and he had a machine pistol in it. And I remember taking the first squeeze on the the first pressure on the trigger of the thompson submachine gun and pointing it at him and watching that pistol to see whether it would even start to come towards me because if it did that was going to be it fortunately he saw the mirrors of his ways and dropped the pistol and put his hand on his head with a big smile on his face but i, I hope he knew, knew as i did how close he came to causing a real incident
1: that's incredible are there any other highlight moments for you from that confrontation? The wider confrontation, I mean, not that particular pirate encounter.
0: Oh, well, there were many, many other incidents like this. Uh, we, we weren't only involved in operations of Borneo, but as I say, around Singapore and around the Malaysian archipelago itself. It was a very consistent uh, operation where we were always conscious of the fact that the Indonesians could cause trouble and we could be called to action. So the ship was at a very high state of readiness. My boarding party, I selected them myself, mature, uh, very capable uh, members of the ship's company, Uh, they were all trained to a high degree in small arms uh, activity and so on. I guess it's not much different to what's happening in the Gulf at the moment. And how long did that posting last? Uh, About 18 months in Vendetta, and we were deployed, I think, if I remember right, uh, nine months into into, uh, Southeast Asia.
1: Also around that time, Australia begins its involvement in the Vietnam War, which fully escalates for us by 1965. What are some of your experiences in Vietnam?
0: Well, my my first experience was uh, when I went to uh, join the 7th Fleet, the American uh, US 7th Fleet, to do a review on the feasibility of sending uh, one of our daring-class destroyers to Vietnam in place of one of the five-inch um, Charles F. Adams-class destroyers. Uh, I was then serving at Navy office as Director of Surface and Air Weapons, and uh, so I was the supposed gunnery expert. So I went to uh, uh, Vietnam and served in uh, for a short time in in four of their naval ships, the Constellation, the carrier, the Coral Sea aircraft carrier, the USS Fettler, uh, a Fram-class destroyer, and the uh, USS Davis. It was a very interesting period in seeing how the Americans were carrying out actions in that war. And I was able to come back to Australia from that and uh, make an assessment as to the uh, feasibility of sending Vendetta, as it was, uh, there to replace one of the Charles of Adam ships. And Vendetta subsequently went there. I remember being very disappointed that I wasn't appointed as the captain of Vendetta, but Vendetta went there and, and, and did extremely well. What was it like on a US ship compared to an Australian? Well, they do things a little differently to the Royal Australian Navy. They don't have the deep specialisation in, in naval gunnery, for example, that we had. So I was uh, I was extremely interested to see uh, how they went about their business. But in the end of the, the day, we're all seamen. We all know how to run ships, and uh, I felt very much at home with them. I also spent a bit of time in the actually ashore in Vietnam, uh, visiting our clearance diving teams and talking with. Uh, some of the uh, naval staff in in Vietnam itself and that was interesting. What was it like going ashore? Well very different to today I can promise you. Uh, Saigon was a was a different place and uh, you knew very much that you were in a war zone and that anything could happen at any moment. I later uh, served as captain of the daring class destroyer, the Duchess, and uh, we were deployed to the Far East. And I visited uh, Vietnam twice, escorting Sydney to Vung Tau, and that was extremely interesting. So we we had some military activity in the Vietnam War in that ship. And I imagine when you were ashore and you're
1: walking through Vung Tau or any other place, you don't know the local that's uh, serving a drink or driving your taxi around or anything, They could any one of them be a Viet Cong? Uh, what was that like, that paranoia?
0: Well, yes. I, I mean, you just had to be careful. But it's the difference between, for example, World War II and, and the current day. Uh, you have to be very careful. I can remember in Saigon, uh, one rather interesting impression, uh, going to the markets there and seeing that most of the goods that were being sold were American service material. It was almost as if you'd gone into a military store and they went, went selling arms and ammunition, but everything else that you could think of that applied to military operations seemed to be being sold there. Vietnam was a, was a different sort of war. And it was, whereas World War Two was one that was largely controlled by the military professionals. In Vietnam, it was a, a very much a political, a political war. So the military were constrained very much by what the political masters would let them do. At the time, did you
1: speak with any of the men who'd been on the ground in the thick of it and how they were affected by the experience?
0: Oh, yes. I, I spoke with our, our clearance diving team, for example, and and they were very much in the uh, in the thick of things. Uh, and I, of course, had the opportunity of speaking with the captain and, uh, and members of the ship's company of those four American ships. So I, I had a fairly close exposure to the, the Vietnam War and uh, my time in Duchess um, really put the seal on that. Speaking of
1: Duchess, that was your first command in 1970. That must have been a proud moment for you.
0: Yes, it was. And, and she was a great ship. There were uh, about 370 members in the ship's company, and we managed to bring that ship up to the point where she won the gunnery trophy for the best gunnery ship in the, in the Royal Australian Navy, and that was particularly pleasing in being able to take such a good gunnery ship to Vietnam. If anything had happened, I know she would have been able to uh, demonstrate that very clearly. But she was uh, keeping calm in the waters, as it were. Well, yes, she was. Escorting Sydney to Bungtau, I mean, you knew you were within range of perhaps enemy mortar batteries and that sort of thing, but had they have attempted to engage us in Bungtau Harbour, we would have been able to more than deal with that situation. But when you're there, you're reminded of the fact that you are in a conflict zone. You have to uh, stay at defence watches with the weapons manned and ready. You have boats going around the around the ship at anchor towing barbed wire and and throwing grenades over the side every now and then to deter underwater divers and and that sort of thing. So you're very conscious of the fact this isn't like being in Sydney Harbour. This is very much in a war zone and you've got to be prepared to deal with any of the uh, consequences that might occur. What was your next command after Duchess? Uh, My next command was Hobart, the the guided missile destroyer Hobart, and I I had her for uh, almost three years. I was very, very, very fortunate because she was a remarkable ship. And did you have any significant operations with Hobart in that period? Uh, None that involved sort of uh, hostile activity. We spent most of our time at sea. I did a a lone deployment around the Indian Ocean, uh, operating with the Indians and and Pakistanis, and and indeed at one stage uh, with the Iranian Navy. That was, in retrospect, a remarkable experience, because we were, I think, the second ship to go to Iran. I got to know the the Shah's nephew, who happened to be the commander of their destroyer squadron uh, very well, and their fleet commander. Uh, This was about uh, two months before the Shah was overthrown. And um, at the end of my visit there, uh, we were to exercise with the Iranian Navy for for a day. And the Iranian destroyer commander was to be the officer in tactical command. The day before we were to go to sea to hold the exercise, he came to me and asked whether I could take tactical command because his uncle, the Shah, had uh, asked him to do something else. So I actually had a, a day at sea with the Iranian Navy uh, carrying out operations in tactical command of the, the Iranian Navy. Um, and this was just before the Shah was overthrown. So And, and the circumstances changed totally after he was overthrown.
1: Not the likeliest international cooperative military pairing there, but... No,
0: but uh, I guess I could say safely that I'm the last Australian and perhaps um, allied um, uh, naval personnel to have ever taken charge of the Iranian Navy. (laughs) I think (laughs) that's a unique scenario, definitely. (laughs) Incidentally, the Prince Shafiq, as he was known as, was uh, assassinated a year later in Paris. And uh, quite a few of the people that I met in Iran during that visit... uh, were shot afterwards. Did you find
1: the same thing then working with them that you did, say, working with the Americans in Vietnam, that you're all seamen, you all have that same trade, that same love of the sea?
0: Yes, they they seem to be a very enthusiastic lot. uh, But I have to say that their professional skills were not quite up to ours. And they did have American advisors on board all of their ships. Uh, so, to a certain degree, they were assisted by uh, people from overseas, but it also it also helped in the matter of communication and so on with them at sea. So their practices were not all that different to what we were used to. And also, during your command of Hobart,
1: Cyclone Tracy hits Darwin.
0: Yes, that that was uh, indeed a, a remarkable experience. indeed, I, I joined I joined uh, Hobart just a, a couple of weeks before. Cyclone Tracy occurred, and the ship was in um, a mid-cycle docking period in, in, in Garden Island Dockyard, uh, being maintained and so on. Two of the four boilers were, had been dismantled, for example. And when uh, Cyclone Tracy occurred, we, we had to get the ship back together again, uh, bring people back from leave, and then sail, I think, on Boxing Day. It was only two days after the cyclone occurred, and we uh, went with the rest of the fleet up to Darwin and it, it, it was an extraordinary experience. Can you tell me more about the
1: actual relief operations in Darwin?
0: Yes, when we sailed from Sydney we didn't really know enough about what had happened at Darwin because we'd lost communication with, with Darwin. We didn't know what our assistance was going to going to be. A- indeed, uh, most of us thought that it, it possibly would be evacuating people from Darwin. So we prepared to do that on the way on the way north. Uh, when we got there we found that, that we were required to uh, start the uh, repair and, and resuscitation work for the city, if you could call it that uh, after Tracy. I mean the devastation was almost total. Probably 80% of of Darwin had been destroyed. And the people that remained there needed help to at least be reassured that the assistance that they needed was there. And so we were landing about a half of our ship's company every day to go and uh, help clear the damage that had been done in Darwin. But we also did a few other other things like... um, Uh, The commercial radio station had been blown away. So we ran the commercial radio station on board our ship using our own communications and using one of the civilian staff in company with our um, amateur radio people on board. And uh, we did that for for about a week until our technicians could repair the radio station itself ashore. So that's the sort of thing we did. Quite involved in the life of the town and its people, not
1: just labour-intensive
0: no, that's right. I think the principal factor in that Navy helped Darwin, as it was called, was uh, morale, helping to raise the morale of the people of Darwin and, and so that they knew they weren't alone and that they were being helped. I, I, th- I think that that work that we did over a period of about a month was invaluable. What became significant to me was that I didn't know at that time that some years later, in 1990 that I would be asked to go to uh, the Boganshire in New South Wales to take uh, charge of the uh, flood recovery operation in uh, that part of New South Wales. And it helped me hugely when I arrived in, at Ningen to start the work of, of trying to bring that town and other towns like it uh, back to life again, uh, that I had experienced the Cyclone Tracy uh, restoration work in Darwin uh, many years before because I was able to put in place a, an organisation that we used in Darwin and that took us some days to uh, to fine tune, whereas I was able to sort of do that immediately. I went to Ningen and um, the practices that I uh, experienced in Darwin were tremendous value to me later.
1: Because jumping ahead there, that was in 1990. You'd been retired from the Navy for a year, but they still called upon you for your expertise. No,
0: I'd only been retired for about about three or four months, I think. And uh, I was rather surprised when I was asked to go to England uh, to, to help in that flood recovery, because I thought they mistakenly thought I was still serving in the Navy, but uh, that wasn't the case. I, uh, of course, accepted. How can you not accept? But I was conscious of the fact that Taking uh, charge of a recovery operation after a natural disaster is, is fraught with great uh, danger. It's uh, time is always your enemy when you're. Uh, dealing with a a natural disaster, you don't have time to plan what your next step should be. You have to make judgments and hope that you get more ticks in the box than crosses. And usually, uh, the person who takes charge of disaster relief usually gets heavily criticised afterwards. And I was uh, conscious of that and I was quite prepared. And indeed, I told my wife and family that they should not uh, be upset if if subsequently I received the criticism that I was uh, fairly certain would occur. And it was uh, remarkable that that didn't seem to happen.
1: What groups were you coordinating for those relief efforts? Was it all civilian or was there military involved as well?
0: It was mainly civilian, uh, although I did call upon military personnel to help me with the, the basic organisation. And indeed, it was um, interesting that uh, members of the ship's company of HMAS Hobart came amongst the first group to help me in, in that operation there were reasons why I couldn't call on the military in in a full sense of the word. And so I used the, um, the next best thing. I used the volunteer bushfire brigades. And so they came up in uh, large numbers and to help work in the disaster relief operation. And they did a marvellous job.
1: Well, thankfully that goes well for you and you and your family can continue reading the newspapers for the next few months and not have to black those out. But let's, uh, let's go back to just after Cyclone Tracy, or a few years after, you rose to higher roles in the Navy beyond your commands of ships, and that began with command of HMAS Penguin Naval Base in 1978. What was your next role after Penguin?
0: Well, I went uh, down to uh, down to Navy Office as director of naval plans, which is a pretty important important job. How the Navy should be shaped for the future, and then I went to the. Uh, Department of Defence in the Strategic Policy Division, and and this was starting to become involved in the sort of higher thinking of defence matters. And after that, um, I was very, very fortunate enough to be sent across to London for 12 months at the Royal College of Defence Studies, which is a a tremendous experience. And uh, the college used to be known as the Imperial Defence College, the IDC, and uh, it brings together students from, in in our case, uh, about 19 different countries all of of a pretty senior level, representing the services and the civil service and the police and industry. You study uh, world events uh, over a 12-month period with the very highest degree of instruction and and people who are are very much in the front line of strategic operations. Uh, It was a wonderful experience to be the Australian Naval representative for that year. It was in 1982. And what occupies you for the next few years in the Navy? Well, I went from there, I came back to Australia, uh, missed out on the command of Invincible, uh, the British carrier Invincible, which was to be sold to the Royal Australian Navy and to be renamed, I think, HMAS Australia. And so I went over in 1982 to uh, do the Royal College of Defence Studies and then to pick up the Invincible and bring it back to Australia. But unfortunately, the Falkland War occurred. Invincible showed her colours during that operation and Australia um, gallantly offered Great Britain the option of no longer selling the ship to us. And, of course, Margie Thatcher um, jumped at the chance. So I missed the opportunity to command Invincible. So I came back to Australia, went to the uh, support command for about a year and a half, I think, and then, uh, then was posted to, the, to be the first commandant of the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. And that was an interesting experience as well. And then in 1987, there's a coup d'etat in Fiji. In 1987, the beginning of 87, I was posted from the Defence Academy to the Fleet Command, a Fleet Commander or, or Maritime Commander if it became a, a joint operation. And uh, the Fiji coup occurred. In those days, the if a, a joint operation occurred, one of the uh, field commanders, and it's either the, the land commander in the Army or the air commander in the Air Force and, or the Fleet Commander in the Navy, would be assigned the joint command responsibility and the Fiji coup became a naval joint command responsibility so i became the maritime commander and the fleet sailed for for Fiji to um, uh, be prepared to evacuate Australian, New Zealand, British and American people if it became necessary or to uh, to be there to uh, respond to whatever the Australian government would require. And it was a very interesting uh, operation, uh, conducted very efficiently, I believe. I was uh, pleased that we weren't uh, required to take part in any military operations, but we, uh, we were there in preparation anyhow. And what rank were you at this time? I was uh, then a Rear Admiral.
1: You retire from the Navy in 1989. What
0: was your final role? In 1989 I went to back to Navy office to be the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff, that's the second in command of the, the Navy, and uh, I had a year doing that before I finally decided I, the time was right for me to become a farmer. You're called away from the farm for the Boganshire operations, as we've covered,
1: but then you're called away from the farm again that same year because you're given a very important appointment.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's remarkable how life turns out. Uh, the, the phone call to ask me to go to the Bogan Shire to sort out the flood operation was was uh, amazing enough, but to get a phone call to ask you to be the next governor of New South Wales is something that you don't anticipate, and so that happened, and. Um, and Shirley and I duly went to Government House to relieve my very close friend, David Martin, who was suffering from uh, asbestosis and who, in fact, died two days after I took over.
1: Yes, because your predecessor was a friend and a fellow Navy man as well.
0: Yes, David David and I, he was also a gunnery officer. We'd had very similar careers in the Navy and he was a a close friend, a close family friend. And we had similar uh, ideas about... uh, how the navy should be, should be run. Uh, we confided in each other uh, regularly. When he became governor, of course, that, that put a bit of a stop to that. But nevertheless, I, I, I became governor with mixed feelings. I, I, I would much rather have that David had been able to continue and, and not to uh, suffer critical uh, health issues. But that wasn't to be the case.
1: It is a sad way to start. But you do serve as the 35th Governor of New South Wales, and you have that role until 1996. But you've kept quite busy since retirement, Uh, Chairman of the Council of the Order of Australia, Vice President of St John Ambulance New South Wales, and Councillor of the Anzac Health and Medical Research Foundation, among others. Where do you find the time to do the farming and all of that?
0: (laughs) That's a good question. I remember uh, Sir Rodan Cutler, the previous Governor of New South Wales, saying to me shortly after I had taken over the role that uh, Peter, he said, you'll find this is a life sentence. I later uh, understood what he was uh, talking about. Uh, how could I describe the role of Governor of New South Wales? It's, it's something that you never anticipate. It's not a job, it's a life. Uh, you have to devote your entire time and energies to the people of New South Wales and, of course, to your constitutional role, which is the raison d'etre for the, the Governor. But it's immensely rewarding. You meet so many wonderful people and and, uh, come face to face with the fact that we have the vast majority of the people in New South Wales are good, caring citizens. And it was uh, wonderful to be able to help them and to occasionally pat them on the back on behalf of the the citizens generally. Well, I imagine your wife Shirley and the rest
1: of your family thought they had you back at the end of your very extensive long naval career and then you have this other role which, as you say, becomes a life sentence well after retirement.
0: Well, that's right. Uh, we we Our, our naval experiences, uh, in, incidentally, we've just celebrated our 60th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. And throughout the 60 years, we've lived in 44 different places. Wow. Uh, I don't think I ever had two consecutive postings in the Navy in the same geographic location, we always had to move. And we've lived in the UK for many years in the Mediterranean, Gibraltar and Malta, and in various states of Australia. And indeed, our time at Government House, that's the longest we had served in any one place was at Government House. And uh, we're chatting in your home today. So is this the longest home
1: you've lived in or one of the longest besides Government House?
0: we're not quite up to Government House yet. Next year, I think we will have reached that length of time. Uh, We're we're used to to travelling, and and surely my wife, is a a marvellous back-up-and-follow merchant. She's been absolutely invaluable to me right throughout my career, not not just at Government House, but throughout my time in the Navy. She's always taken a a great interest in every ship that I've served in, and uh, I think I'm, I'm able to say that she's has always been much loved by the ship's company as well. She's, she has that sort of um, effect on people. <laughs> what are you up to these days? I'm trying to tone back on my activities particularly that involve travel. so'm I'm, I'm still uh, find myself invited to speak here and there and, and here. And and, and and here, for example. I'm still patron of a number of organisations and I try to give uh, my best support to them.
1: I'm looking around and I can see a few little model ships in
0: bottles. Are they yours? Yes, it's one of the things that keeps me sane. I, I, I have the hobby of uh, building ships in bottles. I must have built about 60 of them now. I started doing this in the, in the Navy. It's another way to get your fleet back? Uh, yes, I guess it would be. And I uh, also build the, the, the larger plank model sailing ships as well. My idea of utopia is to sit in the workshop, start to whittle away with a ship model with good music playing in the background. Tremendous.
1: And how do you look back on your time with the Navy today?
0: I wouldn't change one day of it. There have been many occasions, well, two occasions at least, when I received postings that I thought were not going to be as interesting as I would want them to be. And in in both cases, that proved to be absolutely wrong. Indeed, they were probably the most important postings I've had. I'm talking here about shore postings. I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the Navy. Until you've actually served, it's hard to understand or hard to comprehend the feeling of loyalty and mateship that you experience. There's a term for the crew of a ship. It's called the ship's company. It's all of one company. Uh, you all get hit by the same way, regardless of your rank and position on board. You all experience the same danger and the same excitement and sometimes the, the same boredom. Once having served in a ship, you, you you never really forget those experiences. And, for example, there are two reunions being held this year, uh, one for Duchess and, and, and one for the uh, the crew of the Hobart when I was on board. And uh, for people to do this sort of 40 years after they'd experienced the ship is is says something about that comradeship that the navy encourages well i think the young boy who was so keen in the navy league days
1: would not believe the career he would end up growing to have you've had an extraordinary life of public service peter military and otherwise i thank you for it and for speaking with me today thank you that was my conversation with peter sinclair if you like the episode, please post about it on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life On The Line Podcast, and on Twitter at l o t l pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life On The Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.